Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm Dr. Allie Brown. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at ASCP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everybody. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical laboratory scientist and executive editor of journals at ASCP. Today, we're going to be talking about the recently proposed rule for FDA regulation of laboratory-developed tests. Super excited about this conversation, and uh, I'll let our esteemed panel of guests introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Greg Sossman. I'm a clinical pathologist and served as the service line lead for pathology and lab medicine at Auctioner Health. And I'm John Genzen. I'm also a clinical pathologist, professor at the University of Utah and chief medical officer at ARUP Laboratories, where I also serve as a senior director of government affairs. Hi, I'm Matt Schultz, and I'm the senior director for the Center for Public Policy at ASCP. Great, guys. Thanks so much for joining us today. And before we get started, I have a little bit of housekeeping. I have a CME statement to make, and I've got an advertisement, and then we can get going on our discussion. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. Every specimen, every test, every diagnosis, every patient, the laboratory never leaves you, and the work you do is with you in every aspect of your life. The laboratory saves lives. You save lives every day. An ASCP membership fuels your ongoing professional development, connects you with the leaders revolutionizing pathology and laboratory medicine, and brings recognition to the progressive influence of the laboratory. The time is now. Become part of ASAP and find the support you need to advance the vital work you do every day. Explore ASCP membership and join at www.ascp.org slash membership 2024. All right, guys. Yeah, thanks again uh, for joining us. Since I know that probably some members outside the laboratory medicine and pathology community may be listening to this podcast, can you guys give us a brief overview of what a laboratory de- developed test is? And what all that encompasses. And once we have that groundwork, we'll kind of dig into this proposed rule and, and the implications of it. John, you want to get us started? Yeah, absolutely. In the way I think about it, there's two regulatory types of tests in the United States for clinical testing, the kind of lab testing that, that's ordered when you go to the doctor's office. The first category of things are things that are FDA cleared or approved. And those are typically kits that are manufactured by a company And then they sell those kits to hospital laboratories and the hospitals use those reagents to actually do the testing. That's that's the category of FDA cleared and approved testing. And that really makes up the vast majority of tests ordered in the United States. There's a second pathway that's existed really as long as lab testing has existed here, and that's laboratory developed tests. These are typically things where there's not an FDA cleared or approved alternative but a laboratory has a clinical need in their institution or their population to do testing for whatever that test is for. They design that test in-house. 
Uh, they'll use reagents that are specific for the test that they've designed, but they typically perform it in that one location. Um, and then that's used for patient care within their facility or the patients that they serve. So it's it's a different pathway. It's been regulated under a different mechanism. I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this as we discuss a little bit further. But that's the category of testing that the FDA has proposed regulating in this new rule. Can you give us a, just a few brief examples of what would be a common LDT in, in, the, in the laboratory that maybe people wouldn't realize was one? Sure. Um, I'm sure we can come up with, with multiple examples here as a group, but in our institution, some of the more common laboratory-developed tests are for things like hormones, estrogen, testosterone. We have laboratory-developed tests that are actually much more sensitive and specific than the FDA-cleared alternatives. And so many clinical practice guidelines actually recommend using the laboratory-developed version of those tests. Uh, that technology is its very specific. It's called mass spectrometry, but those are very common here. Uh, vitamin testing in our lab is also very common. It's laboratory developed. Same for things like trace elements, uh, lead testing, for example. We have a very specific and sensitive method that's laboratory developed. There are many genetic tests as well, some very basic and routine at this point. Uh, some of those molecular tests are used for infectious disease where there's not an FDA-cleared alternative. Uh, the other very common category, and maybe this is the last example I'll start with, uh, we have a lot of infectious disease testing that's only approved for certain sources. So it may be a swab collected from a specific anatomical location. But the moment you use that swab for a different form of collection, it's a different source type. And that wouldn't be considered FDA cleared or approved. So those would be modified FDA assays. And in the current regulatory landscape, those would also be considered laboratory developed. So for yeah, example, if you're doing like a PCR test for MRSA and the swab doesn't come from the armpit or from the, the approved nose, location. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like a wound or something has been swabbed for that and they want to do the PCR test on that. That's not approved. Correct. Dr. Sossaman, uh, so we've heard from Dr. Genzin kind of from a reference laboratory standpoint. How about regarding your practice and your, your setting as a large community health uh, system? So I think John's absolutely right that the, the LDT issue is not just about academic medical centers. It is about, about a health system like mine who supports a busy oncology uh, department. And so we do flow cytometry in-house. And those are other examples of tests that are not necessarily um, FDA approved. Um, many of the things we measure in flow cytometry on, say, a bone marrow specimen to help diagnose leukemia or lymphoma are lab-developed tests. And those are done day in and day out to support cancer centers throughout the country. So this isn't just an issue of LDTs being a very esoteric test that's only done in some areas. It's done very frequently. And I think John hits on a really important point that a lot of us have modified an FDA-approved test for a certain, uh, like a body fluid to measure something that a surgeon needs when they're operating, or another very common test that's FDA-approved or cleared. We modify that slightly. And it, as he said, puts it in that category of modified FDA and is looked on the same way as an LDT. So these are actually very common uh, in most practices, most um, health systems now, maybe not in a smaller community hospital where everything is predominantly FDA approved, but there are probably more of these out there than most people realize. So it's not just isolated to a large academic medical center. Does this affect anatomic pathology at all? 
So there are a number of anatomic tests that are, are tests that are used in practice of anatomic pathology, whether it's a molecular test or some immunohistochemical stains that are done very commonly that may be viewed as laboratory-developed tests. So this would cross not just clinical pathology, anatomic pathology, molecular, and cross into most areas. What has spurred this discussion? We have some background as to why we're having this podcast today. What has changed? I'm, I'm happy to start there. One thing, the, the, the main reason is the proposed rule that came from the FDA just at the end of last month. It has been a 13, 14-year history of FDA proposed draft guidance, announcements about um, enforcing laboratory-developed tests. And it's gone through several phases from an FDA-centric phase early on to a congressional phase where, where potentially the Valid Act would have given the FDA authority to regulate LDTs as and all in vitro diagnostics in its own framework. That, that failed in Congress last year. And the FDA earlier this year announced that they plan to move forward with a proposed rule over laboratory-developed tests. There's, there's a few different ways that you can, you can establish a new rule or change an administrative authority in the federal government in the U.S. And one of those ways is notice and comment rulemaking. Uh, it's a very specific term that describes the legal way that a federal agency like the FDA could announce a new rule. That is what they're currently undergoing. They're going through this notice and comment rulemaking. So they've notified the public that they plan to implement uh, this proposed rule. There's currently this public comment period where um, they're looking for feedback from the public on the implications and impact of that proposed rule. And then after that period closes, they have to respond to the public um, in, in broad terms about the range of comments that they've received. And then after that, uh, presumably, they would work to finalize the rules. So we're in that public comment period, which is why this is so relevant for labs and for the community, because this really is our opportunity to let the FDA and the federal government know uh, what we think the impact of this rule would be. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that impact as we go along. Great segue. That's why should we care? Like, what what does this legislation mean to us? What's what's it going to change? Well, I was going to add that John makes a great point about you know the the past legislative history that there's there was a this is legislative action that has failed for multiple years now. So I think FDA and it was hoping that something would go the legislative route, and you know an ASCP has monitored this for a number of years now. And been active on that and watching it, watching what the FDA has to say about it, but also what is Congress's willingness to take up and change uh, change this. So ASCP has again been monitoring this for for a, a number of years now. So I think what is to your point a minute ago, what is what's changed? I think it's probably the FDA saying, okay, there doesn't seem to be a lot of willingness from the congressional standpoint to do something. So we are now going to go be more proactive in getting something changed. And we may talk about this also, but the interesting thing, though, is what will be Congress's response now that FDA has put something forward? I would be surprised if there is not something that then develops on, on, on the legislative side. So what does it mean to laboratories, these new implications or the ones that are being proposed? How... I was going to say, I want to jump in, Allie, for a little bit and ask this question, because I don't know that it's been made quite clear. Somebody may be listening to this and, and asking, well, doesn't the FDA already approve everything? Why are they just now doing this? I guess, why? Who was in charge of 
this regulation before now? So there is a, a separate federal law in the United States. Uh, it was called the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments, or CLIA, originally passed in 1988, but it took quite a while to establish the rules in the U.S. after that law passed. That law and those regulations contain performance standards for what clinical laboratories have to do when they develop a laboratory-developed test. And we are all abiding by those, those rules in the clinical lab community because CLIA 88 regulates our laboratory operations already. Those performance standards are specific for what you do if you run a test that's modified as an FDA cleared or approved kit or that doesn't have FDA clearance or approval. So that's been regulated and still is being regulated under CLIA in this uh, CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So regulations do exist. The FDA is just asserting that they believe they have the right to regulate this type of testing and they would like to do that going forward. All right, great. Thank you so much for that clarification. Go ahead, Allie. I'm so I'm so sorry that I I, I trampled over your your question. <laughs> no, it's all good. I'm just wondering what are the implications for like the everyday practice in the laboratory? How is this going to affect, from a practical standpoint, how laboratories function? So we are currently regulated under that CLIA regulation, and you could imagine an additional regulatory layer where the FDA would have oversight over the design and development of laboratory developed tests in the lab. So that would include new regulations that have that would have to be followed. And I think one of the concerns that many of us have is those new regulations are really designed for manufacturing settings, but not necessarily clinical laboratory operational settings. Uh, so that's number one. Um, number two is the work that it would take to um, meet the structure of FDA requirements for how they would want information submitted to them. These tests are all, all validated anyways, but they may need to be submitted in a way, in a format that the FDA would expect versus what CLIA had required us to do. So I think it, it's the work for compliance and finding the workforce to do that work. I think most of our listeners, if they're part of the clinical lab community, know how stretched things are already and can't necessarily imagine an environment where there is significant additional staff to do uh, FDA compliance submissions. And then the last layer I'll say here is the cost. There are submission fees to the FDA that are extremely significant and probably beyond the scale of what most clinical laboratory settings could afford for things that are the kind of lower risk, we call them class one, class two, 510k submissions. Those are in the $20,000 per submission range under current user fees. But pre-market approvals are over $400,000 per submission currently. So these are very significant user fees and, and submission fees that clinical laboratories currently don't have to pay for. Yeah, we certainly don't need any additional hurdles to jump through in today's climate in the laboratory or, or any day. No one's looking for that. So you mentioned this class one, class two, class three. So not all tests are created equal under this framework? Uh, yeah, because it's the existing FDA framework. It's not, it actually doesn't even describe concepts of how a low, medium, or high risk test and the concept of a laboratory developed test would currently fit. It, it fits that into that pre existing FDA framework, which is where I think things all of a sudden don't start fitting well. Like when you think about laboratory developed tests, many of these, there aren't current FDA cleared or approved devices. And so by definition, 
they may get categorized as it's a term called pre-market approvals, but it's the most expensive submission fee. Um, things like changing a specimen type, it's a change in intended use. So that actually would have this intermediate uh, potential fee. It's called a de novo pathway that potentially could go down, but that's about $100,000 per submission. Like hospital labs just don't have that type of funding around to submit a modified body fluid validation because they get 20 requests from a surgeon per year to do a body fluid assay. Like that's just not going to work in that setting. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why why we're concerned is that that impact and, and maybe disproportionate impact on the clinical lab community hasn't really been considered. So, you know, for new tests coming out under this proposed schema, um, they'd have to go through this approval, et cetera. What about for tests that are already being performed and maybe had been performed in labs for years? Does it impact those as well? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say I don't think we know exactly what the FDA intends on this. And we we haven't really specified this before now. So I'll just say that this is really a um, what they propose is, is a rule change. Um, and as part of that rule change, there's a whole policy on how this will be implemented. And it's a phase in over multiple years that will happen. And so, you know, year one, there's information about how you have to uh, comply with reporting standards if there's any issues with something. And then they move it into the, the high-risk category, and I think at year three, and then in year four, they begin to look at medium and, and low-risk, but they've not defined high-risk, medium, and low-risk at this point. So they have in the past talked about these when they tiered different categories of tests, but then at this point, we don't exactly know then for a laboratory like mine who probably only has modified FDA approved test, do those fall into low risk or medium risk? And then I wouldn't be as affected until kind of year three, four versus an academic medical center who has something that might fall into a high risk tier and they be, may be affected more at year two, three kind of thing. So those are the details that we really don't see and we really don't know from the FDA yet at least, and John may know a little bit more about this, but I haven't seen those details yet. And those are pretty important details to understand. And as we only have a certain short period of time to comment on this, we were almost hamstrung in a way, not being able to comment on things that may be extremely important to you, depending on what type of laboratory you work in. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. There's core elements that are missing that would be incredibly important for public comment, but because they're not included, in at least this version of, of the proposed rule, um, it becomes really challenging to talk about the impact when you don't have those critical details of how they how they propose to define risk or how they would propose this in different settings. One of the other things here, when we were speaking, speaking earlier about the tests that are already on the market, is that I think under the rule, FDA is not proposing to grandfather, so to speak, existing tests that are currently on the market. They were interested, I, I guess it's kind of like a, a, an RFI that's a request for information on tests that are currently on the market that would be classified, I think, either as class one or cl possibly class two. But it seems to suggest that if your test is class three and maybe class two, that's not something that they're interested in providing grandfather privileges to. So that yeah, expands yeah for those who may be listening who aren't familiar with that term grandfathering, that's that idea of allowing things to stay on the market 
if they were on the market before the rules were actually implemented. And, and currently, as, as Matt said, there are no grandfathering provisions in the current version of the rule. And again, this class one, class two, class three, is that that risk-based tiered system? Or is it? It's not really. We're used to the moderate complexity, high complexity. This is another way of, of labeling things that we're used to. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a. Uh, it, I don't think they're exactly comparable. Um, there are things that could be, say, class two that might not class be, be moderate risk. Um, so it's not the same thing. I mean, they've never really defined what low, medium, and high risk is. Uh, it's one of the questions we've had for years. So it's just another one of those areas that it's a little, I think, unclear in the rule what they're proposing and how to move forward. And Allie, it makes yeah. me feel better, you know, when when I don't understand things, it's because nobody understands them. That makes me feel better. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that's a great point, Allie. Our language of low, moderate and high complexity settings does not line up to the low, medium and high risk concept with the FDA. Technically, you can only run laboratory developed tests in high complexity setting, settings um, currently under CLIA. So it gives you an example of how they just don't align very well. And there, there are other questions then if they don't align, what comes in conflict? Will there possibly be an FDA process that is in conflict with our current CLIA process or vice versa? And I think those are very real possibilities. And there's not enough detail under the FDA proposal as yet to determine if, if that's, if, is that a real concern or not? But I, I think it probably is. I've got a, a hypothetical question, and and forgive me if you've already kind of touched on this, and I just didn't didn't realize that you were. We've been talking about like modified tests, where there's a test that's already FDA approved, and a laboratory has just modified it. Could that be something as simple as changing a reference range? It depends on how strictly you define the FDA def definition of an LDT. Um, okay. Technically, we can do those modifications under CLIA. I would say not all settings would consider probably most settings would not consider a reference range to be a modification of a test. Uh, but things that are specifically described within a package insert, uh, storage durations, temperature requirements for stability, uh, tube types, if they're specifically defined within a package insert, um, those probably more easily could be considered a modification. And many of us do validations to specifically validate any changes we do or modifications we do under CLIA because CLIA allows you to do that. If the FDA comes in and says, no, you must adhere to your labeling, then all of a sudden, maybe those modifications aren't acceptable under CLIA, but maybe would violate your, your stated labeling under the FDA. So as, as Greg mentioned earlier, you get to these conflicts and it's unclear which side would uh, supersede the other in, in those types of modifications. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and if where the lack of clarity comes in, I can absolutely see a medical director of a laboratory saying, all right, well, this rule goes into effect on Tuesday. After Tuesday, we can't do, we cannot use green tops to do this test. We have to change everything overnight, essentially, till we get FDA approval, which could take two years. Well, that could be one of the impacts to, to some of the laboratories. And I think John's point is just is spot on that the CLIA rules, although they they seem, you know, you have to demonstrate by validation certain uh, specifications for your test, there really is a, a a good degree of flexibility built into the process, right, that we're able to take advantage of. Well, we need to change things for patient care, for, uh, for a certain physician. We can change that test. 
as long as we can prove it's still working properly. With an FDA approval process, that may not be possible. And so then you come into a scenario where you may be locked into, a, as John said, a reference range that's in a package insert that you have to do that doesn't necessarily fit for your patient population. And you may have tested that and know that that reference interval is not appropriate. But then again, so the medical director, which one do you have to abide by, the FDA or the CMS uh, or the CLIA regulations? So that's a pretty tough position to put a medical director in. Yeah, yes, absolutely. For your patients. And particularly when those specimens have already arrived at your door and the clinician is saying, test it. And with a body fluid, maybe that was an invasive or surgical collection to actually get that specimen. Um, I, I would like to avoid circumstances where you're forced into denying care that you think is appropriate just because of a new regulatory layer on top of what you're currently doing. Right. I think that's a good point that a lot of the specimens we collect in the laboratory are essentially irreplaceable, right? Yeah. You have one milliliter or 10 milliliters or whatever you have, and that's all you have, and that's all you're getting, and it's only good for a day. And from the lab perspective, they're at your door, they've already been collected, and the clock's ticking on stability, and you've got to make a decision on what to do. Right. You just invite them into your office and explain valid and what are LDPs. You just have you know engage them in this enchanting conversation about policy. Yeah, so, I'm dead certain that they're going to love to take time out of their day to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> rocking chair in your office, right? That's what I've heard. Like so, the surgeons can soothe themselves. But so, from a regulatory standpoint, what are the potential consequences if you are not following? Does the lab, does the FDA come and shut down your lab because you ran an amylase on an acidic fluid or like, I guess they're probably not very clear about it. It kind of sounds scary. Think about FDA with the blood bank, you know, and how tightly they regulate that. But do you have any idea of like what those consequences might be? Are they fines? Well, the FDA generally has, uh, again, they haven't enforced these uh, in the past. So we don't know, but generally there are, you know, pretty stiff penalties for things. And I think that's where we get into the the conundrum that I, you know, that I have is, well, we've been doing this for a very long time under CLIA. And so now you're telling us that we've not been doing it appropriately or possibly not been doing it appropriately. Could there be, could there be fines or issues like that that are looked at retroactively or is it all prospective? You know, that kind of thing. I think those are concerning, but I just don't think we have enough details right now to know that. I think I think more concerning is the prospect of, you know, our laboratory is going to be able to, as John mentioned earlier, be able to continue to offer these tests for either from financial concerns or maybe it is regulatory concern. It's just not worth the it's just not worth it now to offer these tests because we're worried about possible penalties. So we're going to stop offering them. Or is it too burdensome, both from a personnel level and a financial level to offer them in the future? So I think you know, Ali, I think all those points are wrapped up into we just don't know at this point, and it's very difficult to make specific comments on that when there's so much when there's so much ambiguity about how they're going to handle something exactly like that. I want to ask a question, and Matt, maybe you can weigh in on this because I have perused a few of the comments that have been made on the rule, and it seems like there's a fair number of like general public lay people that are that are very much in favor of this regulation. I wonder if folks are coming at it from the standpoint of, say, relatively recent startups that decided to make a laboratory and not turn out anything correctly. 
I wonder if the public perception is, yes, this absolutely has to be regulated. It's for everybody's safety. Matt, can you talk a little bit about maybe the public perception of that and how we can discuss that it's a more nuanced, complex issue? Certainly. Yeah, actually, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things I think is interesting about this is is the public perception on what a laboratory test is and how good it is. And I've talked to my friends and you know, they'll get a test result and they'll assume that it's always correct. And it would be awesome that that's true. But there are, you know, there are certain parameters on developing a test, specificity, sensitivity, all these things that our other guests here understand far better than I do. And there's trade-off. So when you're doing tests, you don't have a test that is 100% accurate all the time, or it might not be able to actually identify that what you're trying to identify. I don't think people understand that. This is just something that, you know, folks on the street would assume that if you've got a test, it should always be accurate and there's no reason for it not to be. So I, I think there's a lot of confusion. I think that if I was unfamiliar with the laboratory industry, I would say, well, why shouldn't a test be accurate 100% of the time? I mean, it just boggles the mind. I mean, everything's supposed to be perfect. perfect. But I, I think that that's one of the things Dr. Genzin and Sussman should tackle is what are the expectations for what we can do with the test? I mean, what are the trade-offs? Because I think people expect them to be perfect, but I don't think that's necessarily a reasonable expectation. Is perfection not reasonable, Dr. Sussman? Isn't that your only acceptable criteria? It's always the goal, Dr. Brown, but we all know that that's not possible for most laboratory tests. And, and that's why we go through this whole process of proving what we can do with these tests. And that is the validation process that, again, exists under CLIA already. So I think, but Kelly makes a a good point that uh, in a good bit of the preamble from the FDA that we saw on this, there was quite a bit of uh, mention about uh, public safety and concern and articles that you might read in the lay press or actual litigation from patients who believe they were harmed by some of these tests. So I think that is part of what FDA is included in this in this justification for their now new direction and phasing out of this enforcement discretion. By enforcement discretion, I mean they've said for many years that they have purview over this testing. They just choose not to enforce their ability to regulate it and have left it to the FDA. So that's what's changed is that they say we're we're going to phase out that enforcement discretion and we we're going to regulate these tests as we regulate devices from manufacturers. But they had a number in their preamble again a number of things that they cited Kelly and but public safety was was definitely prominent in in what they put in that preamble. And I think about some of these direct to consumer tests that are out there. I was googling a test the other day and the first thing that came up were like four private companies trying to sell me some direct-to-consumer testing, which I mean, I find terrifying because even as a pathologist, I find laboratory testing extremely complex. And I just don't think, I, I know our clinical colleagues often don't, and certainly the the lay public often doesn't understand the the complexity and all of the things that we do within the laboratory, laboratory to safeguard. So when I see some of these direct-to-consumer tests, and I think this is maybe where some of that fear comes from and some even potentially cite some sort of clinically actionable uh, uh, result or something like that. Do you feel like this has been part of the impetus for FDA to make this? And what what does this mean 
is there anything mentioned specifically about that those types of companies or that type of testing in this proposed rule? They don't mention those any companies specifically, but they they do mention some of the diagnostic issues that came up during COVID with tests that the FDA did review under their EUA process. And they do mention other, again, things that have come up in, in the lay press and complaints from patients. And there were articles, um, I think, in the last year or two about inaccurate prenatal screening tests. So those things really catch people's attention and they don't generally realize the difference between a, a commercial entity doing this versus an academic medical center and the degree of scrutiny that's that's performed in a validation process in an academic medical center. So I think that's where some of that has come from and that concern from the FDA. So they're using kind of this broad brush to, to paint kind of all of the different types of entities uh, that produce clinical laboratory results. So I think that's part of what we're trying to deal with also is that this is one big response to labs that do things in very different ways for very different types of tests. And technology plays a role in this too. Um, And the FDA states in there, there's an exemption for, you know, 1976 LT lab developed test, you know, and they define it in a very manual, non-automated way. So they also are including you know, language in there about how they think technology has changed so much and so dramatically in the last couple of decades that they're forced now to do things and look at things in a different way. And the implication is that, you know, CLIA is not, at least to me, that implication, my opinion, is that CLIA may not be the right way to regulate those types of tests. You guys mentioned a good point about the the COVID testing early on. Can you guys sort of speak to how this regulation, if it becomes the actual rule, how that might affect us for the next pandemic, because there's going to be another one, right? Someday, somewhere, there's going to be a virus that gets out that becomes a human pathogen, and we're going to have to turn on a dime, so to speak, and figure out how to detect it in laboratory testing. How would the FDA regulations, proposed regulations, affect nimble movement within the diagnostic sphere? I think there is a fundamental flaw in vulnerability in what's being proposed um, in relation to exactly what you're asking about future pandemics. I think that's the uh, I think that's the pull quote we're going to use. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but let's walk through this for a second. There is a process, and most of us are familiar with this given COVID, of emergency use authorizations to offer testing after there has been an official public health emergency declared. The flaw in what is being proposed by the FDA in cutting off that laboratory-developed test process, um, at least in an, in an urgent and quick manner, is you could not develop and offer a test for a suspected public health threat until you had that public health emergency declared. And what we saw with the COVID pandemic is that that took, what, a month, month and a half? And there were laboratories that developed laboratory-developed tests to detect COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 virus. But that in this current proposal would not be allowed to offer that testing until that declaration had occurred. So it basically creates this, I would call it a gatekeeping role for offering testing clinically, even if you have the expertise and you've got that urgent threat within your community and you've got that expertise to develop testing for whatever that particular infectious agent is. And that's just not addressed as part of this current proposal. And I I don't think the current 
FDA structure creates a mechanism that would allow you to do that. Would there be an option to uh, report a result with a disclaimer that says that it's not an FDA approved test or that's that would still be uh, in conflict with this? I think it would be in conflict. If I can throw out a question here, given how politically charged the debate over COVID was, there were states out there that, you know, had certain policies that would not necessarily endorse the swift adoption of a public health emergency. How big of a problem would that be at the national scale? Yeah, I think it kind of speaks for itself in some ways that if you don't allow labs to be nimble and use their expertise and respond quickly to emergent issues, the issues get bigger because you don't recognize the scope of the problem and, and the extent and, and geographic extent of that problem. So there needs to be some mechanism for, I've always used this term pre-EUA testing. I know there's been some valid act and some prior discussions on, on what a, a regulatory structure could look like, but I think it's really important to have a pre-EUA mechanism, emergency use authorization mechanism to offer testing. So how do we as pathologists and laboratory professionals offer our sage advice, right, to the FDA? I mean, surely they're going to be reaching out to the John Gensons of the world and asking them for insights on how this should be handled, or will they? This public comment period is absolutely essential. So if somebody has a strong opinion, whatever that opinion is, on how this rule will impact their job, how it will impact the patients that they're testing, how it may impact the industry... This is the time to share that publicly. The FDA does have a legal obligation to consider those opinions. Um, I think they've already expressed their their opinion on a lot of these responses already, but this is the process that gives us that window of opportunity. Uh, the other thing that's really critical to think about is if there are lawsuits in the future about the FDA proposed rule, if it, if it goes live, the information that can be used to support legal cases is what is in the public record from this public comment period. So that's another reason why I think it's really important to get your opinions out there, because if you want those opinions considered in future legal cases, this is the opportunity to do that as well. So Matt, how do we do that? How do ASCP members have their voice heard? Well, we're currently in the process of reviewing the regulation, and we'll be developing formal comments from ASCP. In addition, one of the things we'll do is we'll be putting together some informational and educational materials for our members. Uh, we'll probably put out an action alert asking them to provide comments to FDA on that. I suspect something like that will probably be going out within within the month. So we'll be looking to our members to kind of weigh in on this issue and kind of help guide where we go with the comments, but also just to kind of help educate FDA on some of the concerns that labs have about the proposed rules. Allie, I'll add that, you know, the FDA puts, has some open questions and, and the, their proposal also. And so they want to hear about certain things. And so I think if members have opinions about, as John mentioned earlier, about grandfathering of certain tests, if that should happen or not, um, or if there should, should be some tests that are exempt from pre-market review, should there be a longer phase-out period for LDTs from some smaller labs? And whether, you know, there should be a different policy for academic medical centers, things like that. They also mentioned the New York State uh, Department of Health Clinical Lab Evaluation Program. And so anybody who's knowledgeable about that, I think, should comment on that because there are other ways of doing this. And I think comments around the things that they already put out there would be very helpful. So they are seeking information about certain things. And so I think that would be helpful also for members who have opinions about that to put that out there. 
The other thing I would add to that is sharing information on the benefits of laboratory developed tests. Obviously, the FDA information released so far has been very critical of LDTs, but many of us in the community have published peer-reviewed articles about how an individual LDT may have superior performance over an FDA-cleared or approved alternative. Things like that, like substantive information that can be used to help create a more comprehensive vision of the use of LDTs currently, I think would be very beneficial. Yeah, it just seems like to highlight the expertise of the medical directors and people working in the laboratory that are out there that are true scientists and experts in this field that, as, as you mentioned, not, not everything is sort of created equal and having more of an awareness to that would be not only good for this instance, but for our profession in general. And Allie, just one last comment about what we're doing regarding this. The ASCP is also you know, reaching out to other professional societies and working with other societies to monitor what, you know, what their response is. So uh, certainly we want all of our members to comment if they want to individually. And as Matt said, um, ASCP will be developing its own um, kind of comments, but we're also, you know, trying to be inclusive and reach out and understand all aspects of this and how this is going to affect other members and other areas of the lab and want to make sure we're, you know, we're aware of, how other people feel and are approaching this, whether it be, you know, as John said, you know, possibility of future lawsuits, or if there's a congressional response, how do we also respond to that too? So I think ASCP is trying to, you know, kind of marshal its forces to make sure we know what's going on in the totality of the environment. Well, big thanks to Matt and his entire office and all of our members who give us so much guidance on this and expertise who are there in the trenches every day living this, like like you, Dr. Sossman, and you, Dr. Gens. And we, we are so appreciative. Very thankful. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys, so much for joining us. We've had a great discussion today. I know it's not the, the last word on anything. We may have more discussions about this in the future. For now, I want to tell our listeners to uh, subscribe to the podcast and to tell your colleagues about us. Absolutely. And don't forget, you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store on our website, which is www.ascp.org. Also have a look at our website for the latest e-policy news and other uh, late breaking news to keep up to date on this topic. And you can certainly log into your profile if you're not receiving e-policy on the regular, make sure that you've opted in to receive those alerts from our Washington DC office that Mr. Schultz very expertly crafts. Thank you guys so much. Thanks so much. Thank you guys. Thank you.